Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome a very good friend today, Malcolm Isley, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy Officer for Prisma Health, based in Greenville, South Carolina. Prior to joining Prisma, Malcolm led clinical affiliations and regional network development for his alma mater, Duke University. Malcolm, it's great to have you, pal. Thanks for making time to be with us. Yeah, Tom, it's really great to be spending time with you as well. Thanks for inviting me to your podcast. It's been about 40 years or so since I lived and worked in South Carolina, and uh, my experience was mostly in the Midlands and the Low Country. But I have a vivid recollection that rural access was a major component of the healthcare landscape in the Carolinas. What's different between rural and urban healthcare, and how have you guys been so successful at managing the needs of the rural population? Well, I think with that question, you've really hit on one of the biggest issues that we have, not only here at Prisma Health, but I think as healthcare as an industry has, in terms of being accessible and affordable to all the patient populations we're here to serve in South Carolina, it presents its own challenges, like I believe probably every state provides its challenges. Well, just some numbers. First of all, South Carolina is a relatively small state here in the South. We've got about 5.2 million people, and a third of those are living in rural areas. Even though we've seen rural population percentages decline over time because people are moving to the urban areas, or clearly they're moving out of some of those more rural areas, it actually doesn't make the problem easier. It actually makes it harder and more difficult because the polarization of the resources that are available in the urban and metropolitan areas tend to be more robust. And those that are available in the non-metro areas and the rural areas tend to be less robust. As an example, when you look at physicians per 10,000 here in South Carolina, it's a third in the rural areas than it is in the urban areas. And it's half as many primary care providers. So that just gives you an idea in terms of the numbers game. And then looking at numbers too, the disparities continue, such as per capita income is much lower in the rural areas than in the urban areas. Then the corresponding poverty rate is going to be higher in the rural areas. And what's driving that is when you look at educational attainment and jobs, uh, high school graduation rates are lower in the rural areas than the urban areas. And the unemployment rate is higher in the rural areas. And the jobs just don't pay as well. You'll know this, Tom, we've looked at this all our lives as we've looked at the key drivers of health outcome is wealth. The more wealth a community has or a person has, generally the better health outcomes because there's a health literacy component and there's a health affordability component. And higher income people tend to have higher educational attainments. So those are probably two of the greatest explanatory variables in the equation. So that's the challenge that we have as a healthcare organization. Just a couple more statistics. Prisma Health is a health company, and I'm going to talk about why I use that word health company, that's based here in South Carolina. We have about half the state covered when you look at the population and the geographic reach. So within 15 miles, we can access 45% of the populations from any one of our care sites. So we're there in the community setting, both urban and rural alike. So that's the scale and sort of the footprint that we have. Then when you look at the um, traditional hub of healthcare planning and healthcare delivering has really been the community hospital. Over the last probably eight years or so, we've brought in two 
hospitals in the rural area and within the Prisma Health family in Lawrence County and also in a, a Coney County. So that's in the upstate market here. And what I think that's helped us do is secure health care in those areas. Those hospitals were independent um, hospitals, and they had all the struggles that independent hospitals did. It was hard for them to meet payroll, recruit physicians, develop new services, meet the community need. So by nature of them coming in as part of Prisma Health, we switched out their information technology system. So we got everyone on the same clinical record. We made investments in clinical technology, um, such as new MRIs and CT scanners. We had a very focused effort on medical staff development and recruitment, raised wages for their employees, which had fallen behind. So we were able to attract and retain talented workforce, and it made investments in the community. So We've seen the volumes, the financial, the health outcomes by any measure or metric. We've been able to stabilize those in those two areas. So that's sort of one idea of how we've addressed this is through that rural hospital support and alignment. We've also expanded the number of rural health clinics. I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast before, but it is a federal government program that allows additional reimbursement uh, and payment for providing certain services in certain um, targeted geographic regions. We've really expanded on that so that we've been able to bring healthcare services closer to where people live and work, and especially in the rural areas that otherwise would not have been affordable or caused a strain on the local system. So we've really invested in that. And along with local providers, we've worked with FQHCs, these federally qualified health centers, developed a number of partnerships with them They are in both urban and rural areas, but we've developed strong relationships with them, including them in our clinically integrated networks and other activities. So partnerships, if you're not picking up on that as a trend uh, very much. We also developed an accountable communities program, and I'll pause on that just for a second. You've probably heard of accountable care, that's accountable care organizations, et cetera. A number of years ago, we developed this, uh, this philosophy and this approach and these programs where we become accountable to different communities. And that community could be a geographic community. It could be a population that we have under uh, risk arrangements, or it could be the community we're accountable for because we're a safety net provider, which we are in the upstate and the Midlands. So we've developed community health outreach programs that have mobile vans. We have clinics where we go out and meet people where they are and take services to them. And that was especially important during the COVID-19 when we were dealing with testing and also vaccination because people who live in rural areas had barriers to access to that. So we equipped our mobile vans or retrofitted them to be able to manage the storage needs of the COVID vaccine. And we were able to go out there and provide those services locally with local leaders um, to help educate individuals about the benefits of receiving a vaccination in providing those services within churches or through the mobile vans or what have you. So really understanding the needs of each community is important in developing wraparound services and programs there. And of course, virtual care. Every healthcare organization in the U.S. has really saw this rapid adoption in capabilities around virtual care. And uh, we see that as a real opportunity to remove barriers. Now, We've got access issues with broadband out in the rural communities especially, but our state legislature has been really progressive on this and is formatting some of these ARPA funds that are coming in. The plans are to invest over $400 million in this next budget cycle into expanding broadband, especially in the rural areas, so that there's access to it. 
not only for healthcare, but for economic development, education. Everyone had to go home and, and learn remotely and attend school from that perspective. The investments in the infrastructure are occurring. And I hope you see through all this, this is nothing we do on our own. We have to do it with partnerships, both public and private partners, to be able to address the needs of rural health. It is an issue for us. We're making some significant progress, and it's something that we'll continue to focus in on as Prisma Health. And those same issues about access and affordability are alive and well in our urban areas, too. It has to do with income, and it also has to do with community education in terms of the access to services. I appreciate you sharing those insights. And I was anticipating hearing you talk about bringing care closer to the rural communities. It's unreasonable for us to believe that everyone will always come to where we are. And and so listening to you talk about bringing that care out with retrofitting your mobile units and that sort of a thing is a perfect segue to another question that I had anticipated talking to you about. There's a delicate balance between local access and the need for clinical scale, particularly scale of high-risk procedures where the medical literature would tell us that there are certain proficiency thresholds above which outcomes are better and below which outcomes are not so good. How have you handled situations where there may have been pressure, whether it was political pressure, economic pressure, or just the, the expectations of rural communities for clinical program development locally being sometimes at odds with the fact that clinical outcomes are better when you centralize the capacity of high-risk procedures. How have you struck that balance? One of our business lines, if you will, is around acute care services. We work as a system. We've developed local systems of care within each of our market regions so we can align services so that they're providing the highest value to the patients and consumers that they're there to serve. So that purposefully and intentionally need to be thinking about who gets what services from where and how do you ensure that the access is there so that there's no gaps. And you also want to be able to minimize the overlaps to ensure that you're not wasting resources. So that's an important aspect, first, from a planning perspective, to look at how healthcare services are organized and delivered. We do that through a service line approach here at Prisma Health, where we've got our physician leaders and administrative leaders that get together and they look at that continuum of care across the marketplace that we're serving. They look for those gaps and overlaps. And where should we have centers of excellence? And where should we have distributed services? And applying best available data and information against it, whether it's clinical or economic information, population health, growth rates, all those kind of things. So that's, that's the framework that we use. Over the last 24 months, we've had a strong initiative here which is to clean out our tertiary and quaternary hospitals. We have tertiary hospitals in both the upstate and the Midlands, and we have community hospitals. Over time, things just start getting done more and more at the tertiary care centers because the resources are there. The medical staff development plans usually focus in on the urban settings and those metropolitan settings, and that's where our physician practices have coalesced, et cetera. And it's really created, again, this polarity where you have a lot of services available at a tertiary quaternary hospital, but not all of them are tertiary quaternary services. So consequently, we're not actually matching the resources with the needs of the patients. And conversely, when you look at our strong community hospital network we have, they're not working at the full capability that they need to. 
So over the last 24 months, we've intentionally been moving more care out from the tertiary hospital that's non-tertiary to the community hospitals. There's a lot that goes along with that. First of all, it's upfitting your clinical technology to make sure that you have the right technology there in your nursing training and the capabilities of the ancillary staff. And let's not forget about the medical staff need to change the, how they practice because instead of going to one place, they might be going to two or three places or relocating a practice setting to a community setting versus being at the tertiary hub. We're working on that journey because we think the best care is delivered as close to where the patient lives and works possible. We think it's the lowest impact care and we believe it will be the most affordable care. And I mentioned that within the community hospital setting, but we're also doing on the ambulatory side. So it's about matching the needs of the patient with the right clinical delivery platform. That will be moving some care out of the tertiary setting and putting it in the community hospital setting. This whole idea of the center of excellence doesn't necessarily have to be a physical location. We believe that it needs to be a commitment to certain cost, quality, patient engagement outcomes. And if we can meet those, it doesn't have to be in one location. Now, volume is a metric that we look at as well. But there have been so many technological advances that have really made, in some cases, volume not the driving force in terms of a quality center of excellence. And let's use total joint or knee replacement, for example. We've created these wonderful centers of excellence throughout the United States. I know we've done it where you drive high volumes through these programs because they've had great clinical outcomes and great cost profiles. Well, there's a recipe for that. So there's prehab, there's post-acute care services, there's patient selection, there's getting the right team together, training the right team. And now they've got these robotic assist devices that really help the OR team make sure that they get the right type of placement with the right type of implant and you get a really good clinical outcome. So if we can achieve a certain cost and quality and clinical outcome profile, we think that that's appropriate to do in a distributed manner for that. So we'll be actually moving out the center of excellence out of some of these high volume sites that we have now back to the community hospital because these are high incident rate activities and should be done in a local setting. And they're going to ambulatory settings, as we all know. So that just gives you the mindset of how we're looking at that. Now, that doesn't mean everything should be. And I'll give you a good example. When we came together, our heart and vascular service line got together. In one market, we had an LVAD program. It was really good, one of the top performers in the country in terms of clinical outcomes. In the other market, which is just as big of a market, we did not have an LVAD program. And the leadership in that market, when we came together, it said, well, we need our LVAD program now too. And we said, let's get our service line leaders together and talk about this. And let's have this discussion based on what's the best for the patient and the people paying the bills. And then let's think about how we organize the services in that way. And I handed to our group. They looked at this and there was a lot of data, a lot of discussion. There weren't a lot of great benchmarks out there to tell us what's the right approach. But we decided we're going to keep that in one market for the time being until we get to a point where there's certain volume, cost, quality, or impact. Because at some point in time, that LVAD program for the implant piece might get so large, it could start overwhelming that healthcare system or healthcare provider in that area. But we do pre-LVAD work in both markets and we do post-LVAD work. So it's just the implant itself that we only have in one market. So that to us is getting the docs and the nurses and the pharmacists and the administrators together saying, what's the best thing for the patient? How are we going to do that? 
And then let's develop some measurement criteria and track our progress and learn from that. Same school of thought went to as we started our solid organ transplant program in Prisma Health. Neither one of the two legacy organizations had that. But when we came together, we had enough covered lives, if you will, to be able to start that program. And sure, each market wanted it, but we found the right place to start that program in one of these markets. So we've got to be disciplined about it. And if it's the suits telling the docs what to do, the war will be lost. No, empower your physicians, work closely with them, provide them the data and information and help them lead you through this process. They'll come up with the right answer if you give them the right information. And that's the process that we use. Make it about the needs of the patient, understand the cost benefit trade-offs, and we'll end up doing the right thing. Great perspective. When we hear you talk about your pair of markets, my sense is that you're talking about Greenville and Columbia. That's correct. Your legacy starts in Greenville, and then you created Prisma as part of a relationship that expanded and connected the Greenville and the Columbia geographies. Your organization is not an academic health system per se, but with this expanded geographic relationship, you now have academic partners. What are some of the biggest benefits that have come with embracing academics? And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've seen coming from where you were to where you are? I was speaking with John Gleason, who's our chief clinical officer. He's been with us less than a year. He comes to us by way of Thomas Jefferson and before that, the Carillion Clinic. Just a terrific chief clinical officer. And academic is in his portfolio. So park that for a second. So academics is under our chief clinical officer. And I told him I was going to do this podcast. And he said something to me. I told him I'm stealing it. So fair disclosure and attribution to John. He said, elite academic institutions wake up every day thinking about how they're going to change the world. And that just actually might improve what's happening locally. He said, organizations like us wake up every day thinking how we're going to change things locally, and that might actually impact the world. So he said, for that standpoint, we both value academics. We're not an elite academic organization, to your point. We're not owned by a university, but we sure do have a lot of very productive, strong university partnerships. And those tend to be in the areas around workforce development. They are in clinical research activities. They're R&D efforts that we have underway. So we put them in those kind of buckets. And for us, that gives us the benefit of focus because everything that we do is about improving the condition of the patient and improving community health. That's what we're really focused on. So we're aligning with our academic partners. So where their interests line up with ours, boy, there's nothing that can stop us. And those are the things that we work on together is find common ground of what we work on and develop those business relationships. So I can tell you there's a very diverse portfolio of academic partnerships that support our medical education program. So we have about, oh, 640 or so residents and fellows in 60 or so GME programs across Prisma Health. We are also affiliated with two medical schools through the University of South Carolina, one in Greenville and one in Columbia. Our physicians are the department chairs and faculty for those medical schools. The clinical rotations come through our clinical learning environment. Every year, we have 8,000 learners that come through our clinical learning environment. We've optimized that to support the workforce development activities, whether that's medical education or, or that's nursing education or pharmacist or social work. We work with a number of universities as well as technical colleges and other entities 
to develop that workforce. So we're intentional, very intentional around that. So I would say that that is a gift that we do have is that that is our focus. And we've got some really strong university partners as well as some other educational partners that help us on the workforce development activities. And it's in other areas too that I mentioned about the clinical research or health sciences research. We've got probably about 80 or so personnel from these other universities that are embedded in our clinical learning environment that are working on health services research. How can we do things differently? How can we do them better? So we're like a learning laboratory, if you will. And again, our relationships are all focused around improving clinical outcomes and population health. So that does give us the gift of focus there. Some of the challenges are when it's football season, you better be careful what colors you're wearing because people will <laughs> judge you harshly, whether it's a garnet or whether it's an orange. So you just got to be careful on that. Other than that, there are not really any troubles with it at all. <laughs> you know, I'm going to take an unexpected detour. The workforce shortage that we're struggling with right now as an industry, uh, very confounding. I don't want to go in the normal direction of training everybody that we need for the uh, short workforce that we're faced with. I'd like to take you down a path talking about mental health. As a country, we do a kind of a suboptimal job, I think, of taking care of the mental health care needs of the population. Do you see the academic partnership as an opportunity for us to devote more energy, to invest more resources, uh, probably in training and, and education initially, in order to expand our capacity to take care of folks with severe mental health and chemical dependency problems? You were asking really good questions. These are the ones that are in front of us in any given budget cycle as we look at things. And every day we're dealing with this issue from a practical capacity standpoint. I heard a couple of weeks ago that on any given day, we're getting 200 to 300 referrals for a psychiatric visit from our own physicians. So that's two to 300 new requests per day. It's just impossible to keep up with it. The good news is people are talking about mental illness now. It's not something that you whisper behind your hand as you're in a conversation with individuals. We're actually talking about it. So as we talk about it more and it becomes more generally accepted as a conversation topic, there's going to be more demand for that service. So we see that continue to grow and develop. We think that this has got to be, again, a community-wide response to be able to address these issues. There's a workforce piece of it for sure. We are producing, through our graduate medical education programs, we have at any given time 100 physicians in our GME programs training in psychiatry, whether it's a geriatric fellowship they're going through, or it's a child and adolescent psychiatry or general psychiatry. So we are working very hard to be able to educate and train more psychiatrists, if you will. South Carolina, again, leads where it should lag and lags where it should lead. So we are very low in terms of the number of psychiatrists per 100,000 population. And we lag when you just look at general nursing per 100,000 population we're the lowest per capita state in the U.S. So just convincing people to relocate from Oregon or Michigan ain't going to work. We're going to have to develop that workforce on our own. And that's, again, through our partnerships with the universities and technical colleges, et cetera. So there's one piece of it is the physician aspect. I think the second piece is new care models. So what does the care team need to look like for mental health services, for preventative mental health services, and also the treatments that we have, ambulatory and acute 
we need to reimagine what that looks like. The role of the social worker, I think, is going to continue to grow and evolve in this organization and also in the mental health space especially. You need more experts in that area that can work with those patients that are struggling and need that kind of support and also be able to hook them up with the social service agencies that will benefit them as well. So I think we'll have more of that team type approach, whether it's social workers, psychiatric nurse practitioner training, all that. We need to work on all that. And we need to be working more closely with our primary care physicians to help them manage more psychiatric disease in their practices, make more remote access available through telemedicine and telehealth, and expand our EAP programs. Each of our employers that work in these areas need to expand the EAP programs because people are now seeking out EAP. They're seeking out some help. We need to be able to provide those services. So, Tom, I wish I had a package to answer to you, but this is one of the areas that we're really focused on is mental health services. It's one of our two high-level strategic priorities in terms of our service line investments that we're going to be making over the next 24 to 36 months. That and cancer care will continue to be ones that we want to continue to grow and develop and with our other services, too, but they're going to get special attention because the problem or the demand is only going to increase. And we need to be able to change the way that we diagnose and treat, because if we just do it the model we're doing right now, we'll continue to fall further behind. Couldn't agree with you more, and I'm thrilled to hear that it's an area of emphasis with you all. I've got one pointed question that I'd like to close with before we wrap things up. I would ask it more broadly, but you touched on it earlier. It's the notion of partnerships. I was thinking in anticipation of talking to you that given your geography and given the the challenges that you're facing in rural health, that this idea of partnerships would come up. And I wonder if I could ask you, Malcolm, to give me just an example maybe or two of the most innovative partnerships where instead of aggregating hospitals and physicians into a bigger, bigger health system, you're partnering to meet the broader needs of these complex patients with some non-traditional partners. What would you maybe throw out as an example or two of the most innovative or the least predictable? Okay. I'm going to give you two examples. One is we've got a clinically integrated network. It's called Invio, I-N-V-I-O, that includes 5,100 physicians throughout South Carolina. And that's a group of employed physicians by us, but independent physicians as well that have come together to say, hey, listen, we want to get together and enter into arrangements that allow us to manage populations to certain cost, quality, patient satisfaction targets, because we believe that that's important to do. We want more accountability for the clinical outcomes as well as the economic outcomes. So in terms of partnerships there that we've come together, it's not about hospitals aggregating, it's about physicians coming together to say that we agree with these principles, these are the types of arrangements we want to do, we want to be able to have the care management capabilities to make a difference in our patients' lives. Because that's why the uh, physicians and nurses get into medicine. It's not to show up to work every day to do the work, it's to make things different and make things better for their patients. And we do believe that they feel like nurses and physicians again in a different way when they're able to really make a difference in their patient panel's life by controlling more of the decisions that go around what type of treatment by when, and get more involved in the care management activities and the resources that go along with that. So I think our clinically integrated network is a great example of a partnership among Prisma Health as well as independent physicians and care providers. That's one area. Another area I would look to is 
This is an interesting one. We've signed a multi-year partnership with Siemens Health in the Ears, and that did a couple things. One is across our entire organization, when it came together, we had many different generations of clinical technology with MRIs and CTs, different manufacturers, different places in their life cycle, different ways that they interfaced with our Epic system, et cetera. And we said, listen, we want to create a brand experience that's for our patients as well as our team members and our physicians. We're going to upgrade all our clinical technology to a certain standard and keep it that way. And we're going to get that type of clinical technology that also will allow us to lay on top of that software solutions that can provide better patient care and also use less resources to do that. So that was the intent of the relationship with Siemens was that one area. It wasn't just to buy a bunch of equipment. We bought a bunch of equipment, but it was more so than that is to bring a standard across Prisma Health and also have them at risk for the adoption of it. I don't know if you use your Microsoft Office or Excel and Word. I only use four or five functions there. And then when I'm sitting down with my son or daughter and they're going through and clicking through all these different, I said, I had no idea that it did those types of things. And I can certainly be more productive now that I understand those shortcuts that are available in Word. It's the same thing with clinical technology. Put them at risk to help us adopt and use it to maximum benefit. So they're at risk for that piece. But also we've created an artificial intelligence health economics institute. So it's got two of those pieces to it. One is we wanted a partner here that could do two things. One is they have some products in their life cycle. We want to be a place that can be a proven ground for them to show that better patient outcomes and better operation efficiencies can be done. We want to be on the front end of that. So we look and review at those opportunities and bring them into our organization as appropriate. The other side of that is our docs and nurses have some great ideas of how to improve healthcare. And we want their engineering group to hear what we're thinking about, and they might be able to develop with us a new product, a new software approach, et cetera. So that's another aspect of this is having other people at the table with us as we are taking good care of patients. They can hear what our needs are and help develop the tools and resources of the future to be able to support what we're doing. I mentioned health economics too, because there are a lot of great ideas out there, but if you can't prove value in terms of clinical outcomes, in operations improvement, then it might not be something worth going after. So we want to be able to call balls and strikes, if you will, as we're putting these things together. So we're going to take a real hard, sober eye at the clinical and the financial outcomes of these ideas and these products that we're doing. That gives you an idea of a couple of the areas that we're looking at. And there are other things that we have ongoing here. So as we support Habitat for Humanity. Yeah, it's a great thing for corporate engagement, but more houses and more housing securities will help with mental illness and job growth, et cetera. We sponsor Meals on Wheels because it's a good thing to do and our people show up in the Meals on Wheels kitchen, prepare meals and deliver them to people's homes. And when someone shows up in our emergency department and we notice that they have some food security issues, In our electronic health record, we can order a Meals on Wheels consult. So Meals on Wheels will go out to those places. So they help us. So every community partnership that we have helps our community partner, but it also helps us in terms of addressing our social determinants of health. Same thing with National Alliance of Mental Illness, et cetera. So we look at every partnership opportunity we have to improve the health of the population or the care of the patient that's in front of us at that point in time. 
Wonderful perspectives. You know, you mentioned tools, and that actually brings me to my last and closing question. We always like to end our conversations with a question that allows listeners to get to know our guest on a personal level. And you use the word tools a number of times. I've heard that there have been sightings of a soft-spoken, lanky guy with gray hair wandering around flea markets, yard sales, and pawn shops in South Carolina, carrying wrenches and uh, old hand-crank drills or socket sets out to the trunk of his car. Can you shed any light on, on, those, uh, <laughs> on those, those sightings? I'm a man of few hobbies. I really am. I'm a, one of the most low-key, boring individuals that you'll ever meet. But I like puttering around the house. That's one of the things I like doing is fixing stuff. And whether it's working on a car or fixing a light switch, and many times it doesn't get fixed. It just actually gets more problematic. I just really enjoy that. I learned a number of years ago that having the right tool for the job makes a big difference. <laughs> so I got an appreciation of that. And um, I, I have this affinity for old hand tools. And I'm not talking something out of the 1800s. I'm talking about Sears wrenches from 1960s and 70s. There's just something that really feels substantial about using the right tool to be able to take care of a job or to fix something up. Or It's just really satisfying. I don't want a new one. I like some history to the <laughs> tools I'm holding. So maybe the skills of the people that used to perform can pass through to me. So I'd like nothing more than going to pawn shops and digging through the boxes of old wrenches and all to see if I can find a socket I don't have or a box wrench that, that I've been wanting or a, a slip joint pliers that I can maybe buy for my son for Christmas. So that's my guilty pleasure is, is going through pawn shops looking for old hand tools, especially Sears Craftsman. Well, you're hired the next time that you're anywhere near my house uh, outside Chicago. You can putter away at all the projects that Sandy has on the list for me. How's that? <laughs> Anytime. Thanks for the invitation. Listen, we've been professional colleagues for a long time, but way more important than that, uh, you've been just a very dear friend of mine. And, and anybody who knows you knows that you don't just seem to be a nice guy. You're the real deal. And I have to tell you, I've always admired your kind of unflappable calm under pressure. If I was headed into a storm, I'd want to have you right beside me. So thanks for letting folks get to know you a little bit today. And here's to many more years of calling you a pal. Well, Tom, I really enjoyed this. And thanks for thinking of me for this podcast. And I appreciate your friendship too, pal. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations to be thought-provoking. And we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>